We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. As you likely saw, we've got a treat for you this week, a fascinating interview with Super Grandmaster Fabiano Caruana. We will get you to that momentarily. First, a few quick announcements. Number one, I'm launching a new media project. It is a free chess newsletter called the Perpetual Chess Link Fest. It is run through a platform called Substack. Basically, every Friday, I'll be sending out a list of the best chess stuff I've read online in the prior week. The email newsletter will be free. Um, and it's again, it's it's my job as a chess podcast host to keep up with the chess news. So I thought it might help people if I just give you a quick list of, hey, here's what happened this week. And it will include blog posts, book reviews, coverage of top events, Um uh, information for, for chess improvers, and the list goes on. I'll keep it short. You know, when I look up recipes online, it drives me crazy. When people tell you their whole life story before telling you their recipe, I won't be doing that. I'll just be uh, sharing quick comments on why I found something useful and linking to it. And again, it's free. Uh, all you have to do is either Google Perpetual Chess Link Fest or sign up through the link in this show description. And again, it's separate from this podcast. It will just be a separate newsletter that goes out every Friday. As we record this, the news broke yesterday that chess.com is acquiring the Play Magnus Group to um, the biggest chess company in the world and one of the biggest are combining. Um, so stuff like that I'll obviously be linking to and covering. Um, uh, by the way, this is that 
acquisition is not discussed in my interview with Fabiano Caruana. And actually, we, we won't even discuss it on Perpetual Chess next week because next week's interview is a fantastic one with Grandmaster Gregory Kaidanov. It's already recorded as well. So eventually, of course, we'll be talking about this seismic event in the chess business world. But it will be a few weeks before we get to it, which is fine because it's a story whose implications will be felt for years, not days. Anyway, getting to the Fabiano Caruana interview, just wanted to mention a few things. I wanted to thank the St. Louis Chess Club for helping to coordinate it. And I wanted to mention um, that to be sure to tune in to the Sinkfield Cup, September 1st to 13th from St. Louis. It's got an absolutely stacked field. Magnus Carlsen, Ali Reza Ferruja, Jan Nepomnici, Fabiano himself, Wesley So. The list goes on. A double round robin. It should be a fascinating tournament with lots of great chess. And uh, following the Sinkfield Cup, there is the Champion Showdown, which is Chess 960 slash Fisher Random. It will feature many of the same participants September 13th to 16th. Um, we also wanted to mention at the World Chess Hall of Fame in St. Louis, there is this Fisher Spassky exhibit running through April 30th, 2023. Those of you who heard my recent interview with International Master John Donaldson, uh, who of course is a world authority on Fisher. Uh, he discussed it a little bit. It's on all three floors of the exhibit. It's the 50-year anniversary of that match. So it's a great time to go to St. Louis right now. But if you want to check out that exhibit, you've got till April. So moving on to Fabi. I mean, obviously, you guys probably don't need me to introduce him, but I'll just share a few nuggets uh, just to remind you. He is the number three highest rated player of all time. Obviously, one of the strongest American players of all time. He, of course, Joined me from the St. Louis Chess Club, where he had one of the most dominant tournament performances of all time when he won the 2014 Sinkfield Cup. He also tied for first in the 2018 Sinkfield Cup with Magnus Carlsen and Levon Aronian. Speaking of 2018, of course, he played for the World Championship against Magnus Carlsen that year. We discussed that in some detail in the interview, among many other topics. So without further ado, I'd like to get you to this great interview with Fabiano Caruana. Please remember to subscribe to the Perpetual Chess Link Fest if you're interested in getting a free email with all of the top chess news. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Here's my interview with Fabiano Caruana. So Fabiano, thank you for joining the show. It's a real honor. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And Fabiano, I'd like to start with the biggest news of the chess year, although there's been lots of big news, especially emanating from a certain Magnus Carlsen. And that is the the announcement of about a month ago that he would not be defending the title. I know that you had been on the record thinking that maybe he would change his mind about that. Um, so I'm curious because Maxime Bashir Lagrave, your super grandmaster colleague, had said that he initially also thought Magnus uh, would change his mind, but then got news before Magnus's announcement. So I'm curious if you had any inkling or if you just woke up like the rest of us and found out that Magnus would be stepping down. Well, I spoke to people who know him, who are close to him, and they didn't say anything directly, but they hinted that he was quite serious about not playing. And that was um, near the end of the candidates or after the candidates, um, since a lot of his, let's say his people were, were there. Um, and so it, I still wasn't sure, um, because from my point of view, it just, it seemed like something that, you know, you might entertain as an idea to forfeit the match. Um, but his point of view is a bit different. Of course, he's, he's already been in that position many times and, uh, for him, maybe it doesn't hold the same appeal. Uh, he doesn't really have to prove anything. Not, not the way that let's say when in 2013, when he first, uh, won the world title and played his match against Vichy Anand. Um, you know, after uh, nine years of being world champion, um, he probably doesn't feel there's anything left to prove. And uh, from a financial point of view, maybe he doesn't care about it as much. It's not not a pressing issue for him. And possibly it just doesn't appeal to him to play, you know, uh, a very... Like these matches, even though the result varies a lot, they do have the same general tendency in which players prepare very, very seriously and try to not take excessive risks. Because if you lose the, a game in the match, you there's that feeling that it'll be very difficult to come back from that. So I wouldn't say that players play cautiously, but there is that you know incentive just not to give any ground to your opponent. Um, and that's what we saw, like you know Jan's strategy, his opening strategy is to play the Petrov to play um, 
this extremely popular, but also um, one could say unambitious line for Black of the Catalan, uh, where you sacrifice a pawn, which let's say Hikaru um, is playing exclusively. I mean, the, these lines where you're trying to minimize the risk to yourself, but also, you know, you you don't take you don't get as many chances to win. So you're trying to like shut the game down with Black, take your chances with White. This this is a general strategy. And that leads to matches that are very, it's very difficult to break through and also very frustrating it could be. And um, so I understand why Magnus uh, didn't find that so appealing. Um, and it's possible his motivation level is not where it was years ago. I mean, I think that's also a natural thing when you've played chess for so long. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned the natural tendency towards risk aversion in the the world championship, but in the candidates, it can often be the opposite. And in fact, during interviews leading up to and during the candidates, you mentioned that you you could only treat it as first place is all that matters. And I think that that showed in your play in the second half. So I'm just curious, Fabiano, when this news broke about Magnus, did did you in, did you go back to how you played at that period, or is it is it just water under the bridge? Well, I mean, I can't say it's water under the bridge because it's uh, it's still a recent thing for me. And yeah, it's a big disappointment. Um, it would be a big disappointment regardless of whether Magnus played or not, whether second place would have been good enough or not. But yeah, that does does compound it. And uh, um, But I, I can't look at it from you know point of view of if I had known that second place would be good enough, then I may, yeah, I, I probably would have played a bit differently. Uh, but you can know that at the time, and if, let's say, I, I had taken a different approach, gotten second place, had a good result, and Magnus had decided to play, it also would have looked a bit like, well, you know, second place doesn't matter so much, and what did it matter if I got second or fourth in that case? Uh, and uh, the other thing is I, I can't say that, like, let's say it was the last round, and I had a clear chance between a perpetual or taking a risk to go for first this was this was a bit of a different situation i was in i was in a, a good position and for second i was in a great position if i had you know if i had known that second place would be good enough but it wasn't guaranteed it was still seven rounds to go and uh and i was leading by a bit but it wasn't a guaranteed second place so i can't say that my strategy would have changed drastically um definitely when i played against ding um, or like those last few rounds when I had already kind of spoiled it a bit, I would have, I would have approached that differently and with more optimism. Uh, because after I lost to Duda, I, I felt like, you know, I spoiled the tournament. First place is completely out of the realm of possibility for everyone at that point. And yeah, I, I told myself, okay, try to play for second and take whatever chance you you can get that that would be enough for something. Uh, but I didn't fully believe in it. I didn't really, you know, I I didn't have like the inspiration anymore, and and my play um, kind of showed that it wasn't really inspired play, and it was also marred by I think some kind of mental exhaustion, which led to like against Ding um, blundering Queen G three when okay I had chances to win that game before, um, but at that point taking a draw would have been fine. Blundering Queen G three was a disastrous and. It's such an elementary blunder that I can only explain it by by complete mental exhaustion at that point. Yeah, and, and I want to come back to the candidates, Fabiano, but hearing you discuss sort of your play that wasn't up to your standard, uh, we're also coming off of uh, the Olympiad, of course, where the American team, unfortunately, at least for Americans, uh, came in fifth and, uh, you know, were the top seed, so some people had higher expectations. And... Um, you didn't perform at your your best level. So do you feel like there was like a carryover? Uh, the team captain, John Donaldson, also alluded to health issues, both on the American team and others. So I'm just curious if you feel like something spilled over from the candidates. Well, I, I can't complain about any health issues that I had. I, I do know that Levon was not feeling well at all. And that, that could be a, a reason for his um, rather poor performance there. Um, my poor performance was... Uh, you know, it started from the beginning of the tournament. I felt like my play was was just very poor, even when I wasn't losing games. Uh, and it slowly got worse. And at the end, it suddenly, I suddenly recovered, but it was already too late in the tournament. 
too late for the team and also for me personally to uh, to recover and have a good performance. Um, and yeah, none of us were really in form. Wesley was at his usual level. So let's say, a, you know, nearing 2800 level performance. Uh, but the rest of us underperformed drastically. Um, and and we all had many weak moments. I, I mean, I definitely had uh, some of the weakest and some of the most crucial losses against Uzbekistan, against Armenia, um, and and against India. Uh, these were very, very costly losses for the team. Uh, as for why, I mean, yeah, I can't rule out that it might have been um, some sort of momentum from the candidates and general disappointment. Uh, but it's hard to say, you know, you, you can only rationalize these things after the fact, but coming into it, you never know if you're going to have a good tournament or not. Sometimes you feel, you feel terrible and you have a great tournament. Like when I had my best tournament by performance, uh, the Singfield cup, I, I was extremely sick before that tournament. So it's not like, you know, there's ever any like real, uh, clear, uh, rationalization for for why sometimes you play well and sometimes you don't that's interesting and you did show better form in the second half as you alluded to is that something where you can sort of start to feel the sort of fog dissipating or is it just like out of the blue you suddenly feel like um okay i'm i'm playing a bit better i'm you know um things are going uh better than they had well i think confidence is a big factor in chess and once you play poorly, you, I think everyone loses their confidence to some degree, um, and wins, they, you know, they inspire you. So for me, it, it really only took like one win against Maxudlu before I was feeling good. And, but for some reason then I lost another game almost immediately hmm. after, uh, actually I lost two games immediately after that. So, uh, at the end, I started to feel well, but you know, who who can say what would have happened if I had played a few more games? <laughs> I could have also played badly. Um, it's definitely not like I was in great form, but at least I ended on a on a solid note. You know, I I, I my last three games were all pretty reasonable. The last game wasn't much of a game; it was a relatively quick draw. Um, but at least from a team perspective, that I was also happy with. Okay, and you did. Uh... Prior to the last World Championship, you did an excellent interview with Peter Doggers of Chess.com discussing your World Championship. In it, you mentioned that you hadn't looked at the games much. I mean, obviously, they left a mark. You still think about them, but you hadn't sat there and analyzed them. Um, Is that something that generally you're constantly thinking about chess so you don't need to? Or was that due to sort of the... um, the magnitude of the world championship in particular. I'm wondering if you try to turn things around when you feel like things aren't going as well, such as in this recent Olympiad. Well, it, it was it was a really tough match, and it was a bit traumatic at the end for me personally. Um, I, I I think I got over that relatively well. I mean, I I had a quite a good run after 2018. I played, I reached one of my highest ratings in early 2020. Um, so I, I was still playing quite reasonably there, and I also um, tied for first in the Grand Swiss in 2019. So I had some pretty good personal successes around that period after the match, which I think is normal also because of the amount of work you put into a world championship match that improves you as a chess player, and and there is a tendency to play good chess after that, I think, for, for most people. Um, but I, I just didn't feel like looking at the game so much, you know. Um, of course, I, I know what happened in the games. I, I, I analyzed them and I made some conclusions. But um, after that, I, I really didn't like look or think back on them too much. Uh, also because, you know, I, I was still in a mode where I thought that, um, well, there's a, a candidate's coming up pretty soon after and, and that should be my main focus. And okay, that was one of the most chaotic you know, periods in in chess and in the world as well. Uh, that that ca- that start of twenty twenty lasting pretty much until until now. You know, um, and as a tournament, probably something like that will never happen again, or you know, not for a very long time. That a tournament is stopped midway through, especially such right. an important tournament. Uh, so yeah, a, a lot happened 
which also kept my mind off of what happened in the 2018 match and and that I was rather close to uh, to getting a win in one of those games and pulling ahead in the match, which is not a guarantee, of course, of match success, but it, it would at least put me as a favorite during the match. Okay. And something like the Olympiad, when you feel like your form is a little off, obviously you'd like to do well in the Olympiad, but it's not the world championship. In cases like that, are you reviewing the games and looking for like technical uh, issues that might uh, be cropping up? Or is it more just like you're just waiting to get in the right headspace psychologically? Well, I, I found that when I'm in, in good form, and this probably applies to other players, um, that you you know, you know play well in all types of different positions. And when you're in bad form, you make mistakes that vary in the type of mistake it is and the degree of the mistake that it's hard to even think, well, you know, my problem is that I'm not playing end games well. It's, uh, you know, here was a, a small blunder. Here was a, a misevaluation. Here I just decided to, um, let's say, stop my calculation short and took a rush decision because I was a bit panicky and didn't want to get low on time. And there's like a million possible types of mistakes that you can make. And you can identify those after the game, but it's very, very rarely possible to find a connecting thread through the mistakes that you make. Usually it's completely different types. Um, and okay, with the Olympiad, it's, it's a team tournament. So, you know, with your losses, it's it's a little bit more painful because you have that element of letting people down as well, while usually you only let yourself down if you play badly. Not Not always, of course, you know, if you... Let's say you're playing a big event and have a team around you, then uh, other people are also counting on you to to perform well. But in a team event, uh, yeah, when once you lose a game, you you start to feel bad, especially if other games are in progress and and suddenly your teammates have to to make up for for uh, your loss and potentially risk their own games to to try to get back in the match. Yeah, that's got to be an, an interesting dynamic. And, you know, Chessbase India had a few videos of like Levan Aronian hamming it up with you guys before the matches and stuff. It's, it seemed like you guys were, were really pulling for each other. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, you know, they're 99% of the time my competitors, direct competitors. And so you can't really root for your competitors. But in this specific instance, it's a totally different situation. And, and yeah, you're definitely pulling for your teammates to to win all their games and uh you know seeing them not play well or seeing yourself not play well is is quite a quite a big disappointment yeah it was interesting to see of course again you're joining us uh from the st louis chess club and in the upcoming sinkfield cup like out of the f- five players on the u.s team in the olympiad four of them wesley so linear dominguez and the aforementioned levon aronian are your competitors. So did that make it harder to like brainstorm openings and discuss players tendencies and stuff like that, Fabiano? Not so much. Um, I think mainly because chess openings evolve so quickly <clears throat> that what you discuss a month ago, two months ago, whatever it is, will scarcely be relevant. Um, and we, and we're not like discussing our entire repertoires, like giving all our secrets away. You know, we, we discussed openings, but but more on a case by case basis and with modern players these days it's everyone's so flexible and can play any opening that it's not like i i know for sure that you know that sam plays the night or for that levon wants to play the the marshal it's like all these play guys are are so versatile that they can pretty much play any opening um that that's mostly a consequence of um you know, chess resources advancing so much, chess engines, databases, everything, the flow of information, and um, and people are just trying to adapt to that. Uh, but yeah, all, all of the, the guys are playing in one of the upcoming events. Um, the Rapid and Blitz also, Sam Shanklin is playing the, the Rapid and Blitz event. Everyone will play the U.S. Championship, of course, um, as far as I know. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm going to have to play against them very soon. Okay, and... As an aside, do you know do you know anything about Hikaru in particular? Whether he'll be playing the U.S. Championship? I don't know about that. I I don't know which events he's playing in. Um, but the U.S. field I haven't the U.S. Championship field I haven't seen yet. Although maybe it's already decided, but it might still be a bit up in the air. 
Listeners, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with more from Grandmaster Fabiano Caruana. Perpetual Chess is brought to you by our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, utilizes space repetition to help you remember opening sequences and tactical patterns. And they have a huge catalog of excellent courses and they're dropping new ones at a blistering rate. New courses include one by Grandmaster Maurice Ashley. There's the new course Grind Like a Grandmaster by Magnus Carlsen himself with his friend Grandmaster David Howell. And The Life and Games of Mikhail Tal, which is an absolute classic book, is now on Chessable. And the video is done by Ginger GM himself, Simon Williams. So be sure to go to chessable.com. They also have tons of stuff that you can check out for free. So chessable.com, check out what's new. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus bringing it back to the olympiad of course the dominant story from a chess perspective was the staggering results of uh grandmasters like gukesh and abdu satarov and of course um these players are very young um so fabiano we have a few questions from uh listeners who support the podcast they're able to send in questions and listeners i'm sorry we're not going to be able to get to all of them but i did want to um ask one from Stuart Katz, who was wondering if he, if you felt like that presaged a sort of uh, a dramatic shift in the chess world order, or is it just standard that top young players, they, they ascend at a stage like the Olympiad, as many have uh, before Gukesh and Abdusatarov? Well, I think we're starting to see more momentum from these young guys. Um, we've known them for a long time as talented players, but now they're starting to make more of a mark and they'll probably continue to happen. We don't know which ones will become top players, which ones will become potential world champions or even world champions. Um, but yeah, they're definitely starting to be able to compete with the best players in the world. Um, so it's, you know, there's players like Aragaisi who I first heard of him last, like not even a year ago when I was playing the um, the Grand Swiss tournament, the qualification for the candidates. And then we had a big blitz tournament afterwards, which was um, dedicated to the memory of Michal Tao. And and I played this this guy I'd never heard of named Ergaisi. And he was so incredibly strong in blitz that it was like, how can you have not heard of someone and then they're so strong? <laughs> and now everyone knows him. Of course, he's already 2,700 and, and he's played the top players and he's you know beaten top players and everything. Um and there's like too many names to, to list. He's just just one example of one of the up and coming talents. Uh, but yeah, it's we'll slowly see some of these guys become uh, the best players in the world. And do you think that this obviously computers and the acceleration of chess learning tools have contributed to this? You know, faster engines, chessable, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see this trend continuing to accelerate, or do you think we're maybe reaching like a steady state? No, I think we'll continue to see that. To see that. Um, and I, I think that we'll continue to see chess players get better by generations. Um, the same way that like, you can't compare the players of my generation to the players of Capablanca's generation. Like The, the level of skill is, is too massive, right? And we'll, we'll see that at some point, that you know, 30 years after my generation, we'll have players who... Who will look at us like uh, like dinosaurs? We are <laughs> we're playing this uh, this chess that you know it looks like uh, the same way that we look at players from from the eighteen eighties. Um, <laughs> maybe not to that degree, but uh, but for sure, the chess understanding continues to develop. And um, I think yeah, that that it still might slow down because when I think about it, you know, I can't say that like Magnus is at a, a level that was far and away better than let's say Kasparov, right? Uh, and still, Gary uh, can compete at a, at a strong grandmaster level, even after retiring for uh, well nearly twenty years now. Um, so yeah, maybe the the differences become a bit more incremental, but 
uh, I've seen a difference in how young players play compared to to players from my generation. Um, a, a stylistic difference, maybe not so much a strength difference because yet, but but at some point we might start to see that too. Um, and and a lot of it can be attributed to how strong engines are. It's uh, I think the the main revolution, and there have been some, but the main revolution started in twenty end of twenty seventeen when Google invested in, um, well, first AlphaGo and then AlphaZero for chess. And then we started using the Leela engine, which was, it was a very strange engine to use because uh, it would sometimes, in normal positions, outplay Stockfish. Uh, You know, it would just, like Stockfish would evaluate a position as better for one side, Leela would say, that's completely incorrect. And then slowly over analysis, we'd realize that Lila is correct. And then sometimes Lila would be un- unable to win Upper Rook and Nengame uh, because of just the way that that, uh, that type of chess engine works. Or it would blunder Mate in 3. This was like a common occurrence in the early days of Lila. So um, now, of course, these, these thing, all these like things are smoothed out now and, and Lila is super strong and Stockfish has, has incorporated the, you know, the way that Lila yeah, learns chess. Uh, teaches itself chess in a way and um, so these engines just keep getting better and better but you know we started using Leela to analyze in in 2018 before the match and I just remember the guys I was working with it was like uh, you know their eyes would light up it was like a revelation to them they would like start to outplay stockfish uh, in like certain structures that Leela just understands better and uh and entire like opening positions we just had like a different outlook on them like overnight and it was it was quite remarkable so a lot of like the opening knowledge of five years ago just seems archaic at this point wow any particular openings that that you felt like uh were just totally um totally different in your mind well the first thing i noticed with the structure was getting the french structure from the sicilian defense we were analyzing variations of the sicilian where black plays d5 and white responds e5 and you get a french type structure and stockfish was a bit it turns out over optimistic for black Leela saw the potential from white's point of view in terms of long-term plans involving a king-side attack with h4 h5 um and okay this like theme of h4 h5 and putting upon h6 is now very well known it's almost um yeah, it's almost a stereotype of like right. how it's changed chess. Um, I was even talking about this recently. Okay, like third move H4 in the Grudenfeld, D4, Knight 6 C4, G6, H4, arising as like the main challenge to, to entire opening complex. The Grunfeld is, um, is one of the biggest opening developments for sure. And um, one of the most remarkable examples I remember was from a variation of the Nimzo with F3. Um, or white basically sacrifices the entire queenside in the endgame, just all the queenside pawns, uh, puts a pawn h6, and then puts a bishop on g7 and just keeps it there with black's king kind of hmm. trapped, not in danger, not in any immediate danger, but sort of trapped on g8, and then slowly tries to take control of dark squares in the center and on the king side and searches for them. It's a very obscure long, long-term compensation. Um these are just like off the top of my head some some examples of really unusual ways that that neural net engines approach chess. And when you allude to the stylistic genera- uh, differences of the younger generation, is is do you see the influence of neural networks, or, or, or are you alluding to something else? Um, I think more so just a very concrete approach to chess, without any preconceptions or uh, biases just purely calculation it seems like a lot of players approach things that way and um and also a a big respect for the defensive resources in chess which i think is correct uh that it's very rarely that you get a position that's totally hopeless uh there's in most cases uh maybe practically but also from an objective point of view most positions um a lot of ways to continue putting up resistance. Uh, so those are two things. Like players are very good defensively; they rarely give up hope these days. 
chess has become a lot tougher, I have to say. It's also from an opening point of view, everyone is extremely well prepared and uh, you you never really get an advantage from an opening. It's like, it's it's extremely uncommon. You know, you you sometimes get a tiny advantage, but most of the time that, that playing field is equalized, that everyone has good openings. Uh, so, so those are like a few, few ways that players have improved. Young players specifically. So, does that impact your training regimen? Of course, you're someone who's famously well prepared for your opponents. Does does the fact that it's tougher to find an edge in the opening point you more towards training different phases of the game, or how, how, what adjustments do you make, Fabiano? Well, um, you know, chess itself has changed a lot. So, the Rapid and blitz and all sorts of different time controls of chess are so important now for every player that you can't just think, I need to prepare for the next upcoming classical event. And I have like the you know, old days, I have like a month or I have three months to prepare and I'm going to have this really important tournament. Now it's like everyone is playing, you know, uh, sometimes over 20 games on, on Tuesday and then a rapid mm-hmm. online event on the weekend and this Fisher Random online qualifier, and this tournament, that tournament, and uh, and it, it feels like players don't put all their, you know, eggs in in one basket. They don't like think this is the tournament where I have to perform super well. They think, well, I, I just generally have to play well in all time controls and have a consistent, um, consistently good performance, and that will guarantee success. Uh, so. And also, the way that you play rapid chess and prepare for rapid chess is, is of course, totally different than, than classical chess. Uh, it's, it's more important to have, like, let's say, a very broad knowledge of openings and positions rather than you know, being extremely uh, booked up on, on, like, let's say you, you, know, you, you want to play against the night orf and you study for three weeks against the night orf. Well, you'll get like one night orf game and, uh, and a million other openings as well. So... Uh, so players just, I think, try to touch on everything, be very booked up on what's going on in chess, who's playing what. Uh, in this recent, let's say, Chess 24 event, make sure that they they see all the games and what players have been playing there and the opening trends. Um, so yeah, it's it's a huge amount of knowledge to assimilate now, which um, which also benefits young players because they have the the energy and the motivation to to sit there and to absorb all that knowledge. We're going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back with lots more from Grandmaster Fabiano Caruana. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by aimchess.com. Aim Chess has an algorithm which reviews your games from the major chess playing sites and then gives you actionable information about what to work on. I haven't been playing as much Blitz lately, just been busy with family stuff. And when I review my games, it shows. My openings are still good, but I need to work on my tactics, my end games, my advantage capitalization, and some other stuff. The good news is that Aim Chess has the tools to help you work on those things. You can review the specific tactics that you missed within the game among countless other features. So you can check out Aim Chess for free, and then if you do decide to subscribe, use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30% on the first month, or you can also use the link in the show description for aimchess.com. Do you feel like you still have the same energy and motivation that, that you did, uh, say, at the age of an Aragasi or a um, well, um, Ferruja? Things are so different um, that I can't, I can't even say. Like I, I don't even remember <laughs> what my feelings were those days. Uh, I mean, so much has changed for, for me personally, and, and I think that's for everyone over the co- course of, let's say, I mean, that's, that's like, let's say, 12 years of playing chess. Um, that yeah, I can't. I can't really say I feel at all the same as then. I, I still feel quite motivated to to perform well. Um, energy is is of course a thing. It it does diminish over time somewhat. I mean, it would be, I think, a little bit absurd to say that that a thirty year old and eighteen year old have the same energy levels. Uh, but but on the other hand. After playing at the at a high level for many years, you do have other advantages, including, I think, uh, the advantage of experience. It, it is something. It's not. Uh, it's not an insignificant um, thing to to have to to have been exposed to all sorts of different um, 
things in chess, all sorts of different situations and tournaments, and and to know yourself quite well psychologically, personally, while younger players are still trying to find the ropes on that. Yeah, and speaking of, of which, it was announced as we record this, August 24th today, there's a late change to the Sinkfield Cup lineup. Uh, Richard Rapport apparently had some uh, visa issues, so he'll be replaced by young upstart Hans Niemann, who has been in the news lately because in the aforementioned uh, Chess 24 event, FTX Crypto Cup in Miami, uh, his his interv- he had, unfortunately, a poor performance. He didn't... Um, a lot of his matches were fairly tightly contested, but he didn't end up winning any of them. Um, and in his interviews, he made some headlines, one where he said chess speaks for itself, and another where he just evidenced uh, sh- sheer frustration. A lot of you probably saw them, Fabiano, and a lot of listeners probably saw them. So I'm curious what you experience when you watch a video like that. Do you Is there advice you would give Hans, Fabiano? No, I mean, from like, from... Uh let's say a chess fan point of view, those were incredibly entertaining. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like as soon as, as soon as he either won or lost a game or a match, um, I, I just like immediately started watching the broadcast to see <laughs> what he would say. Um, I mean, after his chess speaks for itself, I, I just, I was hooked and well, I, I know, I don't know him very well personally. I know him a bit personally. I've played him, uh, once and, uh, spoke to him on a few occasions and, and he's very passionate about chess. I can say that he takes chess seriously. It, it might not be the impression that people get from watching his interviews, but he does, I think, care quite, quite a lot about his uh, his chess, and and he enjoys the game and uh, and is very motivated to improve, which is a very good thing. I I think it it's not really uh, too much of a surprise to say he seems like a very emotional person, <laughs> and uh, and he definitely takes that frustration out uh, in his interviews. Um, on the other hand, he takes responsibility for when he plays poorly. He's not trying to make excuses. Uh, I think his, uh, his famous chess, chess speaks for itself was mostly, mostly meant as a joke or as a way to entertain people. Uh, I, I don't think he, <laughs> he got too ahead of himself there. You know, I mean, you win a game against Magnus, it's, it's great, but that's only the beginning of the match. Um, it's not like the you know if you say that when the match is over then you're then you're in a safe position <laughs> right but to say that during the match i think he understood that it could backfire but it is a, just a funny thing to say uh which which is kind of true but of course pe- a lot of people will uh will view that as arrogance and and uh you know take him to task for it yeah and when i interviewed your friend Robert Hess earlier this year, he mentioned that you're an avid consumer of chess media, which you you just mentioned watching uh, FTX Crypto Cup with great interest, especially Hans's interviews. So I am curious, Fabiano, what your diet is like in terms of uh, chess consumption, both from, a, as you mentioned, keeping up with games perspective and watching sort of fun events, whether it be the Speed Chess Championship or I'm Not a GM or um, or what, you know, the list goes on. I, I don't watch so many um let's say if, sometimes i'm playing these events and in between rounds if my game finishes early i'll tune into the broadcast like the rapid chess championship and because i don't i don't know if this is like very public knowledge but um for let's say the rapid chess championship or similar events we're on like a two camera system to discourage cheating and and there's nothing to do in between games besides tune into the broadcast so that that's what i like to do Otherwise, let's say, you know, these you have one of these famous five-second draws that sometimes occur so that players increase their chances of, of qualifying. Uh, then you're sitting there for like 20 minutes with nothing to do, so so it's natural to uh, uh, to tune in and see what's happening in the other games. Um, but uh, there are some commentators that I enjoy watching. I think they do a good job, and in that case, I just watch. I can watch just purely for entertainment, which I know some people don't enjoy, but I, I quite quite like to do it and um if a match is very closely contested then i especially like to watch it if a match is is you know a walkover i rarely have any interest um but but usually we see matches that are quite closely contested in these rapid and blitz time controls it's very rare that that someone completely runs away with it yeah and as someone who does consume your share of broadcast it sounds like maybe it makes a bit more sense i and i think many other chess fans were just dazzled by uh, your broadcasting abilities when you joined uh, Robert Hess and Danny Wrench during the World Championship. Um, 
And we have a question from Patreon supporter of the podcast, Robert Wall, who was wondering if, if you have any anecdotes to share on your experience commentating with them. Uh, and he also said, as a fan, it was wonderful to watch and seemed that you all enjoyed the experience. Well, I, I think I can, um, I can say what like the typical day was like, which didn't start out too pleasantly because we had to wake up at three in the morning. <laughs> right. Um, the broadcast, I think, started at five. But we would have to make sure everything was set up in place, so be there an hour early, and that would pretty much require a 3 a.m. wake up. So uh, it, it required like all of my concentration to still be alive at the end of the long game, especially that sixth round, which lasted I don't even know how many hours. But we, I think we finished wrapping up uh, the broadcast around one in the afternoon, and and that sort of schedule from three to one is, you know, without much sleep is is pretty brutal. Um, so after it was all done, we would usually hang out, play some, yeah, after some rest, play some board games, watch TV or movie or, um, we're, we're all on very good terms, uh, Robert, Danny and I, and, uh, and so it was nice to hang out with them. It was also one of the reasons why I decided to do it was because I, uh, I thought it would be a nice crowd to do commentary with, um, which, which definitely helps, makes it easier uh, and also, they're so experienced as commentators that, uh, let's say, if I, you know, wasn't having my best day, they could pick up the slack and uh, and direct the show. Uh, which was Danny's Danny's job was more so to direct the show and and uh, move it along. And uh, Robert and I were the, uh, let's say, uh, you know, the grandmaster experts, you could say, or or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, I I had a great time doing it. Um, it was even with even with the messed up sleep sleep schedule, it was one of the most enjoyable things I, I I did last year. Wow! So I guess we can hope to see you again. I mean, we hope to see you competing in future events, but if not, perhaps broadcasting. Um. Well, I enjoyed it. I I don't know if it's entirely my thing. Um, I still enjoy playing more so than than presenting chess, but. If people like it, that also adds an extra incentive, you know, um, because, of course, you know, you're sort of proud when you do something that people are enjoying and that you make a good final product. And uh, and I was very glad to hear that people enjoyed the world championship commentary because going into it, I was I was super nervous. Uh, I had never done I had talked about chess, but never as like a main commentator and never in a presenting manner uh, in a way that let's say I don't have to explain my own game or, you know, what happened, but I. I have to talk on the spot about two guys and uh, and what's going on through their minds and what's going on in the game and talking to potentially you know two hundred thousand people was maybe our peak uh, peak viewership at at, um, at one moment during the during the sixth game of course uh, and uh, yeah I, I don't know if I'll do it too often but I might do it again at some point perhaps Ding Nepo <laughs> oh I, I don't know I don't really have any plans. Um, and I also, I don't know if the dates of that or the location or anything is announced yet. So, um, so we'll see. Okay. And on that topic, Echo Hidari, another Patreon supporter of Perpetual Chess, says, "If you, well, first of all, he says, I am among the many fans you have and I've always rooted for you. But then he says, and I'm curious, if you had to bet, would you bet on Nepo or Ding? Um, this is really tough. Like I would, I would really say it's so close to a fifty-fifty that's too hard to judge. And I'm not saying that to be, you know, uh, to be politically correct or to to be on the fence on this one. Um, but they both have their advantages. I I have this general feeling that it's more likely to be Jan. Um, one is is like not at all based on any logic, but just the fact that that he actually won the candidates and and he's going into uh the match like fully deserving as as a participant and ding of course he's a very deserving player but he didn't win the candidates and it was it was pretty much an accident that he wound up there in the match um that that sort of makes me lean a bit more on nepo uh, as players they're like yeah they're both great and and pretty much equivalent players uh not in their style but in their in their let's say strength or their potential uh, the other thing is that I don't know if Ding has the best, like the most organized team. Um, while Nepo, you know, he's already had a team for the match for the last candidates. 
that he's worked with consistently and and it's good to have a team around you that inspires you and also that uh, in the event of difficult situations can can provide comfort and help uh, which definitely will be needed during a world championship match then again you know once once you qualify for a match uh, you you build that team quickly and I'm sure Ding will do that and it'll be hard to say um, if if I was forced to uh, bet on one with equal odds I would I would bet on on Jan but it, I think it would be a close call Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And Ding did mention in an interview with Tarje Svensson, uh, Tarje called him the day the Magnus news came out and he exuded joy about the potential of putting together a team. But I, I get what you're saying because the signals like China hasn't been as supportive of chess recently, at least from the outside looking in as, as one might think. And Fabiano, on the topic of Nepo, um, do you feel like his performance in the candidates to me as a fan was just super impressive, very clinical. Did, did you feel like he sort of showed a higher form coming off of the world championship? And does that like factor into your calculus of maybe tipping him as a tiny bit more likely than Ding to win uh, this match that will hopefully take place next year? Um, well, I, I don't know because it's so, it's so many circumstances are behind these things when it comes to form that like, you know, he, after um, after the match, when he played his next classical event, it was the Grand Chess Tour in Romania, and he looked disinterested and kind of apathetic towards the games, and he it didn't look like he was in great shape at all. Uh, and of course, that could have been because you know he was just focused on the candidates, but it's hard to say. Of course, uh, you know things things just got rolling for him so quickly in the candidates and he's a player who thrives on confidence that everything started working together perfectly. Uh, but there's a few moments in the candidates where you could, you know, things could have changed just slightly and, um, and it might've been a different uh, struggle for him. Um, I think, you know, when Hikaru had that huge advantage in the, in their game uh, and was very close to winning that game, that that was that was one of the turning points. Uh, having a good start, uh, you know, beating uh, Ding in the first round with Black is an incredible start, and uh, and in the second round he had a very shaky position against me and drawing that game. Um, so yeah, you never know how if these things change slightly. I could also um, say the same thing about when I played the candidates in 2018, that there were a bunch of moments when things could have changed differently and then you have a different tournament like in the second round in that candidates i was losing against ding objectively losing not even like worse but uh, basically he was ready to put me away and uh and i escaped that and then you have a different tournament so of course he was in good shape and he i mean he played like the best candidates i think you know at least in in this uh, this century um the best candidates performance that is so uh not to take anything away from him but chess tournaments are like this you change one thing and and things could uh everything could change yeah that that's a fair point and I, on the topic of the world championship um i think you know with magnus declining to uh defend his title there's been more conversation about potential changes to the format again mvl sort of um seems open to it but um, I'm curious if you seem more like a classicist. Is that a fair assessment? Do you do you like the current format the way it is, or would you uh, be open to an incorporation of some faster chess into it? Well, I mean, there is some rapid chess incorporated into it already. Uh, not necessarily, of course, but if, if it leads to a tie breaks. Uh, to make it like, I mean, I don't see the problem with making it, you know, a, a mix of classical and rapid I would probably shy away from including Blitz in that because Blitz is, is a little bit, um, let's say, too dependent on, on a specific day. And yeah, it, it maybe would lead to a bit too much variance. Um, but Classical and Rapid, uh, they fit well together. Um, to have a match that wouldn't incorporate both, it, it makes sense to me. I, I wouldn't see a problem with it. And let's say if I was playing the match... I would probably prefer that because it would make the match a little bit less stressful. You know, one game a day where like every game is such high stakes is, is incredibly high stress. And uh, naturally, I think 
I think players would would prefer uh, something different to that, um, and it would it would lead to more excitement, I'm sure, because um, there would be more chances for comebacks or for collapses or you know all the things that would uh, attract chess fans to watching. Although chess fans, I think, just gravitate towards the match just because of the stakes, and uh, we see that in in the numbers that that chess streamers pull and chess websites pull when when they cover those events uh when they cover the world championship and the and the candidates even though these are classical events which um you know intuitively you'd think people are less interested in seeing than than rapid events or blitz events just because of the stakes people people want to watch and uh i don't know if that would change so much like if i'm a chess fan and i hate classical chess but i love <laughs> rapid and blitz i'm still going to watch the world championship match no matter what the format is uh so I don't know. I mean, I could see both arguments on this, but personally, I wouldn't mind a change. Okay. So yeah, it sounds like open-minded, which is good. And Magnus, when he made the announcement um, on the Magnus Effect, his his podcast, uh, he sort of um, looked back on some of the world championship matches and he had the following quote. Uh, he said, the matches themselves have been at times interesting, at times a little bit of fun. The most fun match probably was the one in 2018. At least that was the most interesting one. And probably also for me, it had the least stressful moments because it was the closest one. And it was one that I felt that obviously losing would have been very bad, but it wouldn't have been the disaster that I considered losing any of the other matches. Um, when you caught that quote, Fabiano, did did that put any wind in your sails or are you too too far beyond to care about like Magnus's micro opinions on topics like that? No, I, I don't particularly care. I mean, it's it's so long in the past now. Um, I also never. I mean, this is the first time I'm hearing of it. So. Oh really? Um, but yeah, it 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 doesn't really make a difference. I mean, I'm sure he speaks from the heart, and uh, and yeah, probably he. I mean, relatively, of course, he would have hated to lose that match, but um, like losing the first would be heartbreaking because. That's you know your first chance to to make the world title, and after you win it, it feels like you already kind of made it, and the less ones have a little bit less uh, less riding on it, and um, probably at that point in his career, having won three matches against Vichy twice against uh, Sergey in 2016, he probably felt like uh, he already achieved enough that this is not like a personal disaster if he if he loses his title, and of course he would have a chance to regain it even had he lost it. Um, and I don't know why, like in 2020, he would consider that such a disaster. Um, I know that he puts a lot of weight on ratings. Uh, like he views that as, I mean, it's natural, but he, he views that as, um, as a testament to one's chest strength. And in 2018, that was the closest that he was to someone. Uh, we were separated by, I think two points. And, uh, so maybe he thought, that uh, just based on the ratings, it's it's more of a toss-up than the other matches, and and maybe a bit less, uh, you know, of a disappointment if he loses it. Yeah, to me, the subtext was certainly his respect for for you as a player. And one other thing on Magnus Fabiano, I know we've only got a bit more time. Um, some people have criticized. Um, him for not being more explicit that he wasn't planning on playing the world championship going into the candidates. Um, if Do you feel that that was a, a fair criticism? Again, obviously you might have approached uh, the tournament differently if you had slightly more information at the time. Yeah, I, I mean it's hard to say. Should he, like if I were in his position, I would have either said that after the fact said I, I don't want to play after the candidates is over, or I would have just said it explicitly before. Although even that, I feel like it encourages players to play for second, which makes the tournament a little bit weird. Um, the way he did it, of course, nobody really knew. So I, I think that it didn't change the way players approached the tournament until like the very end when it was clear second place, like nobody could fight for first uh, after a certain point in the tournament. I think by, let's say, round 11, that was pretty clear that no like nepo is, is is winning this tournament um and then of course uh hikaru and ding were very clearly vying for that second place um they both felt that it it gave them at least some chance 
which they didn't really have any hope earlier in the tournament. So of course they they naturally jumped on this opportunity. Uh, and well, for, yeah, for me, I was already at that point of disappointment that it was like I I couldn't really readjust to the possibility that maybe second would uh, would count for something. But I mean, I can't say it's unethical, but I, I would have done it differently. I would have either waited until after the candidates or just explicitly said before um, that he singled out Frugia is a little bit weird to me. I don't really understand the logic there. Uh, maybe for him it makes sense, but uh, there are other players in the candidates he, who would be new challenge for him. Let's say Duda, he, he hasn't played in a match. And Duda also beat him in a match in the World Cup. So that is you know, certainly not a, a walkover or an easy match for him. Um, just because Frugia is like, you know, four years younger than Duda or uh, or five years younger than Richie or what, whatever it is. I'm not sure the exact differences, but I mean, this is like a very arbitrary criteria to base playing a match on. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, it's it's possible that he himself wishes he handled it differently because it does seem like they, they decided to make the announcement early-ish so that at least we can move forward from here. But yeah, certainly... Um, it was confusing as a fan as well. Um, so Fabiano, I know you've got to go. So from our many Patreon sub questions, I'm just picking one more. And this one is from Evan Rosenberg. Thanks for supporting Perpetual Chess, Evan. And Evan asks, how did your experience growing up immersed in the New York City chess scene shape your philosophy, style, and overall passion for chess? Was there anything unique to NYC that you can attribute your success to? Um, do you think you still would have risen to the pinnacle of professional chess if you had grown up outside the city? And Evan says he's proud to count himself among your many early casualties and wishes you continued success in chess and your future endeavors. Oh, well, thank you, Evan, for that. That's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've thought about it because uh, the U.S. chess scene is, is very, very unique. And I don't know if it's necessarily the New York chess scene or, or just the general um, way that when I was a kid, you know, U.S. chess was, which was a lot of rapid chess, a lot of tournaments, open tournaments with multiple games a day, where you had to win a lot to uh, to guarantee success. Uh, and and I, I'm sure that shaped shaped my style. Um, made me a bit of a gambler and also <laughs> a little bit um, like I had trouble at times not playing for a win, and that. I think that helped me because ambition generally is a good thing rather than you know being satisfied with with just playing good chess and just having good results um but I was always driven by that um that very high level of ambition sometimes very unrealistic levels as well which also led to a lot of disappointments um but but I I think overall it was good when I was a teenager it definitely pushed me above let's say my strength you know <laughs> i i i would sometimes outperform and that would give me confidence and sometimes i would have like huge setbacks terrible tournaments that was also very common for me um but luckily those didn't affect me too much psychologically negatively and and so i was able to make that progress and never get stuck at one point which i think is very good for a young player uh and yeah i i mean i i, I was grateful for the fact that i grew up playing chess in the u.s because um, because I, I think overall it was a benefit for me. And I got to see those two different sides playing the types of U.S. tournaments and then playing tournaments in Europe, which was a total, totally different transition. Um, coaches, of course, at the time said, this is, this is exactly what you need. This is important. You're playing one game a day. You're preparing for your games. You know your opponent beforehand. Um, but I think it's good to be exposed to both of those things. Yeah, well, it, it certainly worked out for you. And as they say, you may, if you can make it there, you can make it, <laughs> make it anywhere. Although in chess, I think the opposite might be true, as Evan is, uh, is alluding to. But anyway, uh, Fabiano, we know that you are incredibly busy. So just want to thank you for taking the time. Obviously, we're excited to see the Sinkfield Cup and uh, look forward to that and uh, the rest of your, your busy chess schedule in these uh, coming weeks and months. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Official one on Twitter, 
at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.